and welcome to the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. It is I, Keith Bergun, your host. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Today I've got a show that's a little bit of a wrap-up of 2022, but it's also got a little game design essay prepared that I wanted to share with you about genres and sort of the language of video games, something that I've talked about before, but I have some new thoughts about it uh, that are very relevant to the things that I've been working on and things that I've been playing. So, but firstly, I wanted to just give a little quick update and a wrap-up of 2022, which was really for me a year that I started to kind of love video games again. I feel like right now I'm in a state of loving and enjoying video games uh, in a way that maybe I haven't in about 20 years. I sort of see my life as having like really front-loaded the video game playing from a very early age. Um, My parents were not um, restrictive at all about how much video games I would play, Um, and they got me an Atari when I was like three. And so I was just, I really played a lot of video games for the first 20 or so years of my life. I think it was around in my early 20s when I started to get really kind of jaded, maybe even a little earlier than that, actually. But I I wrote an article about, uh, you know, the origin of my jadedness on video games. Um, And part of that actually goes back to 1993. I was only actually 11 or 12, now that I think of it. I think that's where the roots of it began, and I bought a 3DO. And I remember I sold a bunch. I had a big video game collection at that point, and I sold it all. Because uh, all I ever wanted for, you know, holidays, anytime anyone got me anything, I just wanted video games. And um, I sold it all. I did a tag sale. I remember it clearly as day. I was 11 years old or so. And um, a friend of mine who was about five years older than me got the 3DO, the Panasonic 3DO, which was a 32-bit system in mostly the 16-bit era and the beginning of the 32-bit era. CD-based, you know, visually sort of impressive for the time, and I was just so hype about it, and I completely bought into the hype for it. Um, Not that there really was that much hype about it, actually. It was just that my friend, who is older than me and could sort of afford such things for his older-than-me type of jobs that he had and stuff, he got it, and I played it at his place, and I was like, I just have to have this. So I sold off my video games and got a 3DO, and within, you know, six months... By the way, the 3DO was $700 in 1990s money. I've told this story before, I think. But, um... Yeah, a lot of money. And then within, um, you know, six months, uh, they were selling it for $50 because it was completely collapsed. It was a very dramatic console collapse. Not that people necessarily had high hopes for it, I guess, other than me, but I really bought into it and uh, really bought the hype. And uh, from that point, it really just changed my perspective on the hype about video games, it just really made me look at them in a a different way. And I also think that um, on top of that, you know, I think that a lot of game developers will tell you that it changes how you look at games when you become a game developer. And I started having that kind of like very analytical kind of way of looking at games um, starting around when I was, yeah, like 11 or 12. That's kind of when I started um, doing QBasic making games in QBasic, and then making Doom maps in a little bit later, about a year or two after that. And that really, I see that as the time period when I really got started as a game developer. And once you once you start making games, I do think it changes probably how you look at games. Maybe not for everybody, but, um, you know, it's, it's much easier to see them as their component parts rather than the sum of everything. And it's a lot harder to sort of buy into the magic, I guess, maybe, of, uh, of a game. 
And so those things kind of came together, plus probably some other personality traits of my own. Like for various reasons, I've always sort of felt like an outsider, potentially because I, a couple of different reasons. I mean, we all have these things that that make us feel like outsiders. Um, a, a sort of rebelling against everything uh, kind of uh, attitude, I guess. And, and I probably still do. And um, I think that also informed my real aggressive anger and and alienation from video games. And then later, you know, in the 2010s, with like things like Gamergate and and sort of a political awakening about everything, it's like there's a lot that's pretty valid to be really critical about video games over, whether it's from, you know, how video games are made and how workers are abused. By the way, that same friend of mine who bought the 3DO, he went on to go work for a bunch of AAA companies and I just heard nothing but horror stories from him. So that alienated me from wanting to work in the AAA industry for pretty much my whole life. Um, And uh, yeah, so I, you know, it was a a perfect storm, I think, of many, many things kind of coming together. And this, I'll get into this, some of this touches, uh, I touch on some of this in the sort of article that I'm going to read to you, uh, the sort of game design article that I'm going to talk about. Um, But yeah, it was really like a good 20 years or so that I was just like, I would go into the game stores just to like hate on everything I saw, you know, I would, I would still play games and there would still be games I would love, you know, Uh, there was never a year where there weren't games that I played that I loved. And so this last year, I feel like things have kind of shifted uh, a lot with this big Final Fantasy thing. I, I talked about that in my last episode. I'm still on the Final Fantasy kick. I'm I'm still going through some of the other games that I haven't played. Uh, I'm going through Final Fantasy VII Remake right now, which I'm, I just really love a lot. I also took a bit of a detour and I'm playing Yakuza Like a Dragon, which is also very, very good. It's one of those games that really works because of all of the sum of its parts kind of coming together. Any one particular element in Yakuza Like a Dragon is not necessarily mind-blowing. You know, for example, like the combat system and the the character, you know, there's like a job system and it's kind of, it's a little bit weak, I would say, overall. Like it has some cool qualities. Uh, It's not bad, but it's, it's, Compared to some other games that I played in uh, in this genre in, in this space, it's it's nothing mind blowing, and that's true for most of the other components of the game. Probably the most amazing thing about it is just the tone and the comedy and the kind of spirit of it. Um, anyone who's played the Yakuza games probably is aware of how charming they are uh, in a certain way because they're very um, they have this like very optimistic worldview. Actually, like you you know a lot of games, and there's something that has also bugged me about a lot of games is that they're a lot, they're very cynical about the world and they're, or they're even like outright fascistic, you know? Um, whereas Yakuza like a dragon uh, and, and the Yakuza games in general, I played a little bit of the other ones are, are very um, hopeful, I guess, and uh, actually have very like positive energy to them. And so I really appreciate that. But yeah, uh, Yakuza Like a Dragon, cool game, playing through it now. Crazy mini games, amazing mini games, uh, which also is one of those things that I don't think I would have appreciated five, ten years ago. But um, now I'm able to appreciate that a bit more. So yeah, uh, I'm hoping that this this uh, trend can stick. I do think that loving video games in in you know in a very direct, unironic sort of way 
is probably going to be helpful to me as a game developer. I think that actually most of my games, particularly like Oro, probably more than any of my other games, it, there's something about it that's very like aggressively rebelling against norms. One of my big re regrets about Oro is that we used to have a story mode in Oro and it had all these different songs in it and these different tile sets and, you know, cutscenes and stuff. And we just deleted it at one point when we made the uh, 2.0 update. And we had, you know, we had some good reasons for why we did that. But I think it was just a really bad call. And I think part of, you know, our stated reasons to ourselves for why we deleted the story mode were that we were going for this new like sport idea, which I do think probably fits Oro better because it's very abstract and whatever and very match based. And we really wanted to like teach people about single player match based games, which itself is it kind of goes into what I'm going to talk about in my in my essay, but itself is kind of rebellious, you know, and and but deleting that story mode, uh, that was really I I. I guess we could probably undo it if we like, but it would be a lot of a lot of work. We could, you know, bring it back. I think that loving games in a more straightforward way probably will lead to games that are uh, less shooting themselves in the foot in that sort of way. Speak the language, you know, and uh, this is what the thing this is what the essay is all about. So we'll get into that. Um, another quick couple of little bullet points before we get into the theory time. I am starting streaming again for now. I'm, I think I may have mentioned this, but I've started looking for jobs over the last couple months. Um, I might have one that is coming together. Uh, I'll probably say more about that later. Uh, it's pretty exciting, but and that may force me to move my schedule around. But for now, on Wednesday, I'm going to be trying to uh, do some streaming. So we'll see uh, if I can keep that going. But I want to do some game design streams. So please come by. It's twitch.tv slash Keith Bergun, and we can hang out and talk about some game design. And then the, fast, the last thing I'll say is um, part of why I haven't had as many shows, I think I mentioned this last time, is I've really been trying to ramp up development of Spellstorm, my new card game, uh, for its Kickstarter in probably about two or three months from now. And it's just been in a bit of a design crisis. And we're kind of coming out of it now, but um, it's it was for like last month in December, it was really pretty scary and we had to kind of start things over almost. Castle of the Secret Arts is also uh, still in production. Just had a good meeting uh, with uh, Brett Lowy and uh, No More Birds about that, and uh, I'm very excited to share that with everyone soon. Without any further ado, let's get into the theory time. Genres and the language of video games. I talked about this a little bit in a recent post I made about Spellstorm, a card game that I've been working on, but I wanted to go more in depth about it here. I got my start writing about game design theory in about 2004, at the time writing game design articles about Warcraft 3 for WCReplays.com. Soon after, I started my own game design blog, I called it the Expensive Planetarium, and then I started writing for Game of Sutra and for Destructoid, and my career was pretty much in full swing. This was at a time period where, in my view, particularly mainstream video games were becoming more and more conservative. The budgets were ballooning, and I think there was just a lot of anxiety about um, how things were going economically in other entertainment industries um, that may have bounced onto uh, video games. In short, I think it was a time when stuff was just kind of rough in video games. Part of 
that may have also been that I myself was getting a little bit jaded with them as well at the time. But that aside, I do think it was a rough time. I've recently over this past year gotten a lot less jaded and I've gone back to games from the 90s, from the 2000s and the 2010s. And I feel like I've really kind of confirmed it for myself. I really do think that this was an era where I was getting my start in games writing and it was a somewhat dark time for games. The point is that I got my start in an era when things seemed really bad. And so a core idea in a lot of my basic writing was kind of, we have to start over. One of the basic thrusts of my 2012 book, Game Design Theory, is that we have to build new ideas about what games are from the ground up. We're putting way too much stock into these half a dozen genres like shooter and rhythm game and platformer and things like that. Largely, I thought, and still kind of do, that these patterns got grandfathered in and now we're just stuck with them forever as though there's some law of physics that dictates that games will have little character jumping onto platforms for all time. Some of my game design theory work from 10 or more years ago is just straight up wrong, but most of it is something that I would really just like to add to or to recontextualize. And um, I would say that this general idea is in that category. It's it's something I would like to yes and. So like, yes, game design patterns did get grandfathered in way too early and we did and still do continue to hew too closely to these. But at the same time, and this is kind of the main point that I want to express today, there's a huge upside to building on an existing pattern, whatever that pattern is. That's kind of what I talked about in my recent article, um, the Spellstorm article. There's a sort of a specific subset of card game, and here I'm talking about a subset that is uh, part of the lineage of Magic the Gathering. Um, Magic itself represents a massive amount of development, 30 plus years of countless really smart designers coming in and working really hard, iterating, being a part of a community, connecting with that community on the game. The amount of like man hours that are involved even if we limit ourselves to just talking about Magic the Gathering, is insane. But of course, Magic the Gathering isn't isolated. It is itself part of a rich fabric of games, some of which came before and informed Magic the Gathering, and many, many have come since. So that would be, you know, there's games like Hearthstone and Gwent and other CCGs, not to mention the whole deck builder genre and other large genres of card game. For me, my reaction to that was something like, why do all these games have health? Why do you even have a hand necessarily? Why does it always cost mana to use spells? Like maybe there's some dramatically different way that that should all work. I saw Blizzard's answer to uh, Magic the Gathering, Hearthstone, and I found it to be very cynical. And I guess I kind of still do find it to be very conservative and sort of business, business oriented design. Uh, but I was really grossed out by it at the time. And I think a lot of it was also that I had this feeling that other designers were just like not doing their job, which I saw the job of game designers to be doing systemic design from the ground up. If I could talk to my 2012 self as my 2023 self, what I would tell him would be something along these lines. Yes, we are baking in a lot of assumptions about how games will be. But there's also an advantage to that. There's a huge advantage to that, which is that when you build on existing ideas, when you specifically don't start from scratch, you can kind of build higher. 
when you're speaking the language of Magic the Gathering, as Hearthstone was, you already kind of have that 20 or 30 years of development behind your game. That's like extremely powerful. I used to think of more derivative games as having a lower ceiling. You know, like it's a Magic the Gathering clone. How good could it be? But I think there's actually an argument that more derivative games might have typically a higher ceiling, at least descriptively. And by that, I mean, how good is the final outcome? Um, Because of the amount of development behind them, there are also often advantages in terms of the floor or how bad your game can be if you don't work off an existing design. And what I've also learned in my years as a game designer is that while sometimes you can kind of reinvent the wheel, I think it's arguable that I kind of did that with uh, Oro and with Dragon Bridge. But a lot of times an attempt to reinvent the wheel can go disastrously wrong. Uh, That was certainly the case with Escape the Omnacronom. Uh, which was an experimental from the ground up design, definitely not similar to any game I had played before. And while that's exciting and I'm glad that I explored it, it was also a three year quagmire that I always failed, um, that I think always failed to become fun and that I would say probably damaged my career. So while I'm certainly not flipping 180 degrees on my previous position, I do think it's great to start from scratch and I do think we need a lot of developers doing that. It's an extremely risky thing to do, whereas working off an existing design has, at least typically speaking, a higher floor and a higher ceiling. Of course, this is all just generalities and won't apply to every situation. Over the past five years, I've also talked a lot about speaking the language and how you probably have to balance doing new and innovative things with using existing ideas because games are a language. And if you want people to connect with your games, you're going to have to speak that language first and foremost. Escape the Omnacronom in a few key ways really fails to speak speak the language. It doesn't speak MOBA language because it's turn-based. And it doesn't speak traditional roguelike language either because you're not constantly uncovering new parts of the map and finding weird, rare loot. I'd say that while Gem Wizards Tactics does speak the language of turn-based tactics games in some ways, it doesn't in at least two key ways. One, it fails to speak the single-player video game language of having a long story-based campaign that you kind of beat or complete, like Advance Wars. Uh, We have a short one of these in Derby Story, but it's very, very small and takes about an hour to complete. And two, Gem Wizards Tactics also similarly does not meet the XCOM-style tactics game of being kind of a roguelike-y long campaign with lots of RPG upgrades and progression. We have a campaign mode, but similar to Derby Story, it's very short and lightweight by comparison. It's not the main thrust of the game. And when I started Gem Wizards Tactics, my intention was to make a tactics game in the tactics genre, but I but I was still really committed to this whole single-player strategy game concept of mine, despite the fact that it is really not part of the language of video games, at least yet. Basically, I think that if I had made Gem Wizards Tactics 100% Derby Story or 100% Campaign Mode, I think it could have done 10 or even 100 times better than it did. And again, this is not about, you know, financial uh, success necessarily, but it's it's really just about connecting with people. And it's even more than that, it's about making the game that I want to make. And the biggest thing that I, that ended up happening with Gem Wizards Tactics sort of by accident. Um, and this is a little bit of an aside, but 
the game became a lot more calculation-y than I intended for it to be. And I think that has to do with a bunch of uh, elements of my theory that I don't have time to get into today on the podcast, but I will at some point. Um, And so that was another interesting thing about it that sort of led it in a direction that I personally don't want to play a very calculation-y game. I did not intend to make a very calculation-y game. Uh, And yet uh, it, it happened anyway. So anyways, back to the main point. Going forward, I'm definitely going to be trying to do things more with speaking the language. With Castle of the Secret Arts, I'm really excited to make a game that builds off of Magic the Gathering. But more than that, Castle of the Secret Arts is in some sense going to be my first video game. And by that I mean, you know, it's a single player progression based thing where you you have a boss, you have a story, you can complete it, you can 100% it, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I've never made a game that meets those criteria before. And so I'm very excited to do that. Uh, More recently, Spellstorm has shifted to a design that builds off of games like Magic as well. Uh, Maybe more so games like Gwent and even to a lesser extent Marvel Snap but it's still in that tradition. Honestly, what I'm really the most excited to do is make a game that builds off of Final Fantasy. Uh, Maybe there will be news on that sometime later this year. I wanted to also mention that uh, over at the KB Games Community Discord, we have a dual track... um, game design book club that's happening right now uh and we started off with uh dwarf fortress once that was released to steam and now we have two games both dwarf fortress and against the storm i've yet to play against the storm i hope to do that this week um maybe that's something i can play on stream but uh, i have played a bunch of dwarf fortress i played it of course you know back 10 years ago or so um and i played it again recently i got into it and uh, the new version's great. It really adds a lot. It's nice to have graphics. And uh, I generally enjoyed it a lot. That said, it got me inspired to go back and play some other 4X games uh, and, and games in that that sort of genre. I, I played I went back and I played Stellaris. You know, the thing that I'm 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 really thinking about those kinds of games is scope and how they all have a major, major scope problem coming from the fantasy layer, and how really none of them seem to be trying to fix that problem. There's this, you know, classic uh, adage that, I don't know if Sid Meier actually said it or not, but um, I think he said that no one finishes Civ games. That's because this scope problem, you know, the first 100 turns are very exciting, and then uh, now you have twice as much stuff and every element of that stuff is now relatively speaking much smaller and less significant and by you know turn 500 or whatever it's just crazy you you no longer have anything to explore it's just about managing and uh, it becomes very automatic and very boring um, and that's certainly the case with Stellaris as well. Um, you know, they made a bunch of, they cleaned a bunch of stuff up coming from a game like Civ, but then they just, it feels like they just stretched it out even longer instead of sort of compressing it down and making it into a more dense thing. Now, I've been told that Against the Storm does some really interesting things along these lines, and I'm very interested to see that. Uh, I also have been trying to resurrect my old game Empire, a deck building strategy game, because not only was that 
game only like an hour long uh and that was sort of coming from it's a mobile game so i'm trying to make something that's a little bit more bite-sized it may even been shorter than an hour uh but also it comes from the fact that like there are real parameters on your scope. You know, it's really controlled. You can only have three cities maximum. Each city will have only three buildings built in it. There are six total buildings and three tiers. And each tier, you choose one of two buildings. And uh, and then at some point, you're going to uproot that city and move it again. And so I've just I've never seen something like that in another game and um i'm trying to see if i can talk to some people and see if i can like resurrect that game you can actually check it out if you have an android phone you can check it out on the amazon android store uh i think it's like 99 cents or something uh but other than that it's impossible to get a hold of uh so i'm, I'm looking into some ways to get it my dream would be for it to just be up on itch so we'll see if i can make that happen but um yeah, it, it's a pretty cool game, uh, and I really wish that more 4X games would really try to manage their scope in a more reasonable way. I, I recently talked to Soren Johnson, um, and we talked about Old World, and uh, Old World is a brilliant game. It's one of my favorite 4X games. It doesn't really do a whole lot to deal with scope. It sort of keeps a lot of that scope stuff in place, and this kind of plays off of my little talk that I just did where um you know there this is part of why i wanted to sort of start everything over from scratch is because there's a lot of stuff in video games that kind of is just grandfathered in and doesn't seem to get questioned or at least not questioned hard enough and i would say that with 4x games that's one of those things is this idea that yeah you're going to start with like one unit and by the end of the game you're going to have hundreds you're going to start with one little tiny city that has very few choices. And by the end of the game, you're going to have a dozen cities that all have 50 buildings they can build. Um, this kind of thing just really, um, I mean, old world makes minor improvements on that, but uh, I think the other problem is just the game length of all these games is just way, way too long. Um, so I think, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I guess part of me is a little bit skeptical. Um, there's something about a goal-driven game, which Old World is, which Civ is, which Stellaris is, versus something like Dwarf Fortress or something like Crusader Kings, which do not have their own inherent goals. I, I actually am a lot more forgiving of the latter. I think that I'm also inherently less interested in a game without a goal, but like Dwarf Fortress is less internally con contradicting than those other games uh, because it's just it's just a big old simulator and if it's boring nothing's happening it's just kind of like going along it's like well what do you want it's a simulator that's that's what it's doing it's doing what it's supposed to do whereas when it has like a win-loss strategy game structure i think it becomes a lot more valid to present these critiques of like the game is just kind of dying mid, you know, halfway through the game. So, uh, yeah, that's a little bit of my rant about 4X games. I've given that slightly before, I think. But um, I am very excited to check out Against the Storm. Uh, hope to do that on stream. And uh, let's see let's see what it does to mitigate these issues. I've been told that it's kind of roguelike inspired, which sounds uh, like at least partially promising. What uh, 4X games are you playing? Are there any 4X games that you would recommend uh, that, that do something about this like scope problem? I'd love to hear about that. So uh, message me in the comments or on Patreon or wherever works for you.
But uh, anyway, that's about it. That's about all I have for today. Um, thank you for listening to the podcast. And if you find this interesting um, and useful, please uh, consider becoming a patron if you're not one already. Uh, this show doesn't have ads or anything. It's completely Patreon funded. So uh, yeah, anything you can give, a dollar or whatever, is really, really helpful. And I very much appreciate it. I also have um, some plans for some guests. We have some more interviews um, that are coming down the pipe. Uh, just a matter of scheduling them. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to those. And uh, I hope to see you over at twitch.tv slash Keith Bergun sometime. And uh, yeah, I'll see you there. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>